The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And have I got a treat for you. (laughs) A wonderful guest and a wonderful book that has just come out. Uh, I was talking to her just before, a couple of minutes before we got on, and all I could say was, it was amazing, amazing, <laughs> very, very descriptive. Um, but, you know, and I'll tell you, explain to you why um, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words, um, <laughs> which hopefully will improve as this show goes on. <laughs> um, well, the book, let me first tell everybody, the, the, today that we're going to be talking about A Marriage Made in Jihad, question mark. Uh, what's a nice girl like you doing with a man like this? This is the question I'm going to be asking my guest. She is Krista Bremer, and her new book is called My Accidental Jihad, A Love Story. And, Krista, I guess I should tell you, the book was not at all, um, I mean, I'm not really, I mean, I had certain expectations, and it wasn't exactly what I was expecting, and I'm going to ask you all about that. You know, it's it's such a um, it, it's such an interesting book for the times that we live in. Um, but I don't want to spoil anything. Let's <laughs> uh, let, let's start with um, you telling us about what the book is about and why you wrote it. Okay. Well, the book is about my marriage, and I am a. California girl. I was raised in California in a secular middle class family and I had certain notions about the direction that my life would take and what my future husband would look like. And then on a running trail, I met a man who was older and darker and poorer than the husband I imagined for myself. Um, yes, and yet talk, I quickly just, fell in love with him. Yes, you talk about, in the book, you talk about um, how you, like most American girls, um, <laughs> uh, played with Barbie and how you expected that you were going to grow up and marry Ken. Right, I, right. I think I, I, um, I had some pretty common ideas about the guy that I would end up with. I imagined him being young and ambitious and sort of from the same class and background as I was. And yet I met an older Libyan Muslim man and I fell in love with him. I didn't expect this to happen. And my book is about a bicultural marriage, but I really believe that every marriage is bicultural. And it seems to me that whether you marry someone from the other side of the world, as I have done, 
or you marry someone from your very own hometown, you still have two people who arrive into the marriage with very different notions about home and family and love and what those should look like, and you have to negotiate those differences. And it seems to me that you can't escape the fact in marriage that you eventually arrive at a place where your partner seems impossibly foreign to you. And I'm interested in what we do at those moments, how we navigate those differences and how we confront our own intolerance. So to me, that's what this book is really about. The book is really about what intimacy entails and what love requires of us and what it looks like over the long haul, as well as the the precious gifts that love gives us when we're willing to put in the hard labor of keeping a relationship alive. Well, let's um, talk about that. The the childhoods that you each had, um, you know, so very different. Why don't you describe that? Okay, well, I grew up with parents who came out of the, the 60s, and they had a real strong skepticism about organized religion. They're both very soulful people, but I got the sense from them that organized religion was something we should know better than to participate in. So we, we had a real sort of individual understanding of spirituality. I spent much of my childhood in Southern California where I enjoyed a really active lifestyle We've always done a lot of outdoor adventures. You know, I've gone on fishing trips with my dad, and I've learned how to surf, and um, I've been a runner for a long time. So that's a little snapshot of my background. And my husband, on the other hand, he, he truly grew up in a different world than I had. He grew up on uh, the Libyan coastline, He was raised by two parents who were both illiterate and were devout Muslims. He was very poor. His mother lost several children during infancy or early childhood, many of of whom died of diseases that we would consider cured in the Western world. Um, He received handouts from the UN when he was a child, And, of course, he grew up under the horrible oppression of Gaddafi. So the circumstances of his upbringing were just in many ways the polar opposite of mine. Uh Uh-huh. And um, it's interesting that you were saying that, I mean, probably the fact that your parents had this, um, didn't believe in organized religion, made you a little more um, able to accept his religion, as opposed to being staunchly raised in one in, in an organized religion yourself. Mm, that's yeah, that's an interesting observation. I, I have noticed, and my husband and I have discussed the fact that he, my husband's name is Ishmael, and he grew up really longing for the type of freedom that he imagined he would find in the West. He always wanted to come to the United States. He wanted to be able to jog down the street in running shorts and date women openly and go to rock concerts 
and speak his mind and go to political protests and do do all those things that were impossible for him to do in his own country. And I, on the other hand, I had grown up with all of that freedom. And I felt that I always longed for a bit more structure to my spiritual life. And I also longed for a life that was a little bit more centered around community. And so it's interesting that we met one another and we found ourselves kind of meeting in the middle of these different longings that we shared. And ever since we've met, I feel that we've been trying to bring these different aspects into balance for our family. Yes. Hmm. Well, um, this what time frame are we talking about? Well, how, how many years have you been married now? We've been together for about 15 years. Okay. So, all right. So that... Um, so 15 years. So it was right before 9-11. That's right. That's right. And in many ways, uh, 9-11 brought some significant changes to our family, although I feel that um, I was already becoming aware. I, I think that there's something that happens in this country when you marry a minority um, you become aware of a different aspect of this country that was invisible, or at least I did. I became aware of an aspect of this country that was invisible to me before I married Ishmael. Hmm. Um, and, and certainly some of the, the bias against Muslims, some of the fear, some of the generalizations really were heightened after September 11th. Yes, and and um, and at the time you met your husband in North in North Carolina, and um, I'm going to want to ask you about how you know what that was like there, particularly. You know, there were there are time in your book. Um, there are certain crossroad moments, you know, when first of all, I, I want to say your book is written so incredibly honestly. Um, you know, you really. You don't hold back in terms of of what you were feeling, although although I must say, you know, I was saying at the beginning it surprised me. Um, I must say, on the other hand, that it seemed to me that you were going with the flow so easily. You talk about jihad being, you know, not not we take it we think of it as being violence, but you talk about that as meaning struggle and about the struggles of marriage and the struggles of family and all the different struggles that you went through. But while you were describing these struggles, and on the one hand I could cringe for you, like the engagement ring story, or the, or the mm. um, on the other hand, you seem to have sort of um, risen, I mean, gone with the flow of all of these things. You talk about feeling, you know, your different feelings, but it, it somehow you manage to... Um, rise above all of them and I, I it made me think of how you describe surfing and your fear of the ocean why don't, tell us about that because do, do you see what I'm well, saying that uh, even yeah. though like the ocean is scary and all that even though you you seem to um, just ride it out sure. sure you know 
I, I was, before I met my husband, there was a time in my life when I was living in Southern California and I was organizing my life so that I could spend as much time as possible in the ocean. And I, I really love the ocean so much that it was the driving force in my life at that time. And yet it was interesting to me because I'm also terrified of the ocean. I always have been and I remain terrified of it. Every time I get into the water, I have to overcome a real inner resistance to it. Um, and, and I feel in some ways that that is an accurate way to describe how I have experienced my marriage because on some level, I think that the vulnerability of committing to another person is utterly terrifying. And I'm not talking about the fact that my my husband is Libyan or Muslim, but just simply that vulnerability of giving one's life to someone else is a terrifying prospect. And yet the rewards of that are so tremendous. And so it interests me that sometimes the things that, you know, the, the, the gifts that are the most precious to us can also fill us with some real terror and resistance. Yes. And, I, I need to and, I need to just stop you there because we have to take a break, but we'll come back to that when we when we come back. Um, my guest today is Krista Bremer. Her book is called My Accidental Jihad, a Love Story, and it is a must read. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Krista Bremer. Her book is called My Accidental Jihad, A Love Story. I want to get right back to her. But I also want to um, mention um, some of... Krista's uh, in, uh, very um, extraordinary accomplishments. She's the associate publisher of The Sun, 
and the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Foundation Award. She wrote an essay called My Accidental Jihad, and that essay on which the book is based received a Pushcart Prize. She's also published essays in O, the Oprah Magazine, Moore Magazine, The Sun, of course, and so on. Um, all these essays, many of them have been translated around the world. She's been featured, you know, on radio and and um, all various various places, and I'm sure it's it's just begun. Um, but uh, before the break. We were talking about how I, how you went about your marriage and all of its the struggles, the jihad, in the same way as you approached surfing. So why don't you continue with that? Um, well, so yeah, we were talking about how sometimes the most tremendous opportunities that come to us can also fill us with terror, and I think. In a way, this relates to the title of the book, which was somewhat of a risk. I knew when I chose the title, My Accidental Jihad, that it would, it would strike some readers um, the wrong way because I know that a lot of Americans associate the term jihad with horrific acts of violence. Mm-hmm. And I also know that in Arabic, the word jihad simply means struggle, And I know that Muhammad taught that the greatest struggle or jihad in our lives is the one that takes place in our hearts. So it's our own internal battle to overcome our egos and our small-mindedness and our pettiness and our selfishness and intolerance. And it's that daily effort to just try to pry our hearts open a little bit wider for the sake of our families and our communities. And I really could think of no better word to describe how I experience marriage and family because I find marriage and family quite challenging. And I also find that there's no better vehicle for my own growth because that's the place, you know, on a daily basis where I have to confront my, my smaller self you know, where I see my own selfishness and my judgment and my intolerance. And um, I'm, I'm usually able to keep that pretty carefully concealed in most other parts of my life, but I can't hide it from my husband. It's where it comes out in full force, and I have to kind of grapple with that and try to become just a little bit bigger for the sake of my family and my community. Yes, and and you you talk about how um, you found going back to the surfing, how you found that if you struggle, um, if there's a big wave or whatever, and you're about, you think you're about oh, to yeah. sink. Go yeah. Ahead. So yeah. So so using the analogy of surfing, as I was saying earlier, I've always been terrified of the ocean, and anyone who has spent time in the ocean, especially surfing, knows that. The most terrifying moment is when you find yourself on the underside of a wave and you get dragged underwater and into the churn of a powerful current. But there's something that I discovered about that moment, which is that if I panicked, I would quickly run out of air to breathe. But if I relaxed into the motion of the wave... I had a natural buoyancy that would float me eventually back toward the surface. 
So what I needed to do in that moment when I was the most terrified was to both relax and to trust that this natural buoyancy would carry me back upward uh, to a place where I could breathe again. And there is definitely something about that that relates to marriage for me. Yes, um, that's what I was referring to before, how even though there were these very... um, you know, cringe, <laughs> cringe-worthy moments um, when <laughs> one could tell that you were very uncomfortable. You still seemed to float to the surface, and I was expecting, um, I was expecting more of an impact. Um, uh, you know, where things were, were harder for you. I, I mean, <laughs> I gotta ask you this: Did did you write it differently, and the publisher sort of? whitewashed it a little bit or 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 are you really that buoyant I guess is my question (laughs) the publisher did not add any buoyancy to this book (laughs) I can I can honestly tell you that and writing for me is actually it feels like a form of spiritual practice because I write in order to find my best self you know it's through the act of writing that I often uncover the meaning in my experience. Yes. And so, you know, it's hard work and it takes time, but but it is interesting how the act of writing itself reveals to me sometimes uh, the meaning in, in some of the more difficult tribulations I've had in this relationship. Yes. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's, that was my burning, one of my burning questions. Um, you know, talk about writing books. A couple of the books that I've written, um, one of them was called Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them, and Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them, and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. And mm. in those books, I analyze why men and women fall in love, basically, with, with who they fall in love with, you know, whether it's bad boys or good boys or bad girls or good girls. And it always goes back to the parents. So when I was reading your book, um, I was interested in, you don't really, unless I missed it, I didn't really read anything about how, you know, well, for a little girl, it's her relationship with her father in particular that forms Mm -hmm. her love map for who she's going to later fall in love with. And um, so one thing I was interested in was when you talk about, at the beginning of the book, you talk about your father coming to visit. This is in your surfing days in California, um, mm-hmm. When you were living on your own, and he came to visit, and your cupboard was essential <laughs> was essentially bare, and mm-hmm. I wondered if that you know reflected um, reflected something about your relationship with him, which then would go on to explain something about how um, one of the aspects or some of the reasons why you fell in love with your husband. Oh goodness, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think I think one quality that my dad has that I have always sought in a partner is that he is a he's sort of a, a fearless individual. He has a very rebellious spirit. He doesn't like to follow the rules and he likes to think independently. And I think that's one quality that I, I really see in my husband, Ishmael, that he, um, it took tremendous courage, I think, and self-confidence 
for him to rise above his beginnings and mm-hmm. to move all the way to the other side of the world and build an entirely new life. And in some ways, you know, it required him to be, it's almost like the word rebel is too small to contain what he did because he had to have the courage and the imagination to reinvent himself in a whole new place. And and I guess that aspect of him reminds me reminds me a bit of my mm-hmm. dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he also has a very strong, uh, assertive uh, way about him that reminds me of my father. And I don't know a better word to describe it, but but it's certainly true that they're, in, in spite of their very, very different backgrounds, they have certain qualities of being and certain uh, ways of expressing themselves that are surprisingly similar to one another. And how did your father... Um react to the news that you were pregnant and married and getting married? Um, I think that um, I think that my parents in some ways went through the same type of journey that I document in the book, which is that it was a shock for them to see whom I chose. They didn't expect me to end up with an older Libyan Muslim man. And I think in some ways it's been challenging for them to just accept that my life did not exactly go in a direction that they imagined for me. But over time, I think they have really increasingly appreciated Ishmael because they've seen how much I have grown and thrived in this marriage. So so maybe over time they've seen that some of their fears were not at all realized. And in fact, the opposite has been true for me, that, you know, my marriage has been a very supportive and life-affirming place for me. And I think, you know, I think we all have not, I, I can't generalize to all of us, but many of us have preconceptions about what a Muslim husband might be like. And I think my husband has certainly proven a lot of those generalizations to be false. Mhm. Um, and and what about what about your mother? Did, what did she? I mean, you, in the book, it doesn't seem like you asked either one of them um, what they thought about this before you jumped into the relationship or decided to con, you know to commit to the relationship with marriage. Uh, well, no, that's true. I mean, I, I was living across the country from them, and I was at that point in my mid-twenties, and so I was sort of beyond the point in my life where I would involve them at an early stage. And then the, um, you know, the accidental part of the title refers in part to how quickly we came to be committed to one another because we had really only been dating for a short time when I discovered that I was unexpectedly pregnant. So it all, it all really happened quite quickly in the beginning. Uh, and and there were times along the way, I mean, you kind of hint at it at least, there were times along the way when you, like like one of the, one of the strong moments was in the, um, in the store um, getting the ring. You want to talk about that? I mean, I could almost feel that, of course, at that point you were just about to give birth. 
I mean, I guess there were times before that. I guess there was an earlier time um, when you were sitting in the uh, town hall of sorts where you were about, where you were literally um, in the process of getting married and, you know, uh, clerically. Oh, dear, there's the music. I need, we need to take a break. Um, <laughs> um, but anyhow, maybe when we come back, you can tell that story, because that was still at a point where I was thinking that, oh, dear, she, yes, you were pregnant, but still, you hadn't, you hadn't, you know, um, you were early in your pregnancy, and you hadn't committed to the marriage. So I was thinking, oh, I wonder if she's, she must be, it seemed like you were sitting there wondering, am I doing the right thing? When we come back, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that and more. My guest is Krista Bremer. Her book is called My Accidental Jihad, A Love Story. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Krista Bremer. We're talking today about a marriage made in jihad. What's a nice girl like you doing with a man like this? And you'll hear more about that. Um, before the break, I was, I was mentioning about one of the uh, um, parts of the book, where the fabulous book, <laughs> where um, Krista is sitting in a. Well, why don't you take it away, Krista? I laid I laid the foundation before the break. Okay. All right. Well, um, in many ways, my book is about a journey, just like every book is about a journey. And for me, it is in many ways a journey about moving from seeing the world one way to seeing the world a different way through my marriage. And um, one of the themes that comes up in the book over and over is the theme of bartering. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. No, I was going, I know I mentioned the ring, but I was actually going before that to when you were sitting, when you were just about getting your marriage license and the woman asked her husband a question. Go ahead. Okay, right. And I think you were asking about self-doubt, right? Yes, exactly. How, how, wasn't that a moment when you thought to yourself, uh-oh, what am I getting into? 
Right. And and I think, okay, so the moment that you're referring to is when my husband and I went to the Justice of the Peace in order to get legally married. And at that time, it was really a very practical decision for us because I needed health insurance. And, and so it was really, it felt like a business transaction and we had not yet reached a point where we were ready to have a celebration and a wedding. And we were sitting at the Justice of the Peace at a, in a a rural courthouse in North Carolina. And my husband filled out his paperwork, and then we sat down with another couple that was about to get married as well. And the receptionist called my husband back up to the counter, and she said, I think you have made a mistake in your paperwork because I asked for your mother and father's maiden names, and you put down that they had the same name. And my husband blurted out in this room in front of this other couple, well, they did have the same name. They were related. And it was this moment where I, I just felt complete shock. Like I had, I had no idea <laughs> that my husband's parents were, in fact, they, they were, in fact, distant cousins. And I didn't find out until this moment at the courthouse. And I was both mortified and embarrassed and and also filled with some uncertainty about where my life was going at that point. Um, and it turns out, I came to understand later, that my husband's actually from a tribe in Libya, and the tribe still exists, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So my nieces and nephews go to school at, in a place where... 20 out of 25 of their classmates have the same last name as they do because they're all from the oh same Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, and and, and, and about, at that moment also, uh, I mean, first of all, it was like it was so far, literally foreign to you, but it was also you, you had just found out recently that you were pregnant and that must have made you feel scared about whether there were going to be any problems with your baby, any genetic problems. <laughs> well... I think there was probably a moment of that, but then I, he pretty quickly explained to me that um, it was it was actually a fairly distant relationship uh-huh. that uh-huh. they had as cousins. But I think this idea of self-doubt in marriage is an interesting one because I felt like um, in some ways I wrote this book to claim my experience as a love story because it looked nothing like what I imagined a love story should like should look like, and I had all sorts of notions about what love should look like based on film and uh, television and love songs and I came to understand that my my notions about romance that I had received through the media were actually a handicap in my marriage, and I think one of the sort of myths that we are led to believe is this idea of certainty, that you meet one person and you're absolutely certain that that individual is the right one for you. Um, And you never again feel self-doubt in that relationship. Um, And that's really, maybe some people experience that, but that's almost impossible for me to imagine. I mean, I find that doubt and uncertainty is just a part of the landscape, and I'm not sure that that ever 
entirely goes away. And I actually think that that uncertainty is part of what helps me to see my husband with fresh eyes and, you know, and, and not take him for granted. Well, um, what were some of the things, I mean, you do talk about how, you know, this was so different from any other man that you've ever, well, of course, you know, gone out with, but also it seems like maybe you were ready, like that you had had some bad experiences, well, you say disappointments in the past with men that you had gone out with when you were looking for this more, you know, um, romanticized version of what love should be. Um, and and how he was such a uh, such a refreshing relief in a sense, or, or a refreshing change from that. Could you explain that? Sure, I I could. I and I explore this a little bit in the book. I I had dated men in Southern California who, um, you know, who had some money and who liked to go out and who perhaps were like to drink and have parties and um, perhaps were more materialistic than my husband is. And and I had sort of become exhausted by the performance aspect of dating. And it was so precious to me to be with someone who made me feel completely at ease in my own skin. And... Um, and also to be with someone who had a certain humility about him that um, that both intrigued me and scared me. Because when I met my husband, he was living in a, quite a small apartment, and the apartment was fairly austere. He didn't have very many things at all. And that was probably, that probably made him seem more foreign than any other aspect of him. Because I was used to being with men who were at least somewhat identified with the clothes they wore or the cars they drove or the vacations they took. And it was totally baffling to me to meet a man who dressed fairly modestly and lived in a very simple apartment and was completely at ease in his environment as if those aspects of his life had nothing to do with who he truly was. And how old was he when he came to the States? Um, I believe he was 28 when he arrived. And so, so he had been here like over 10 years when you met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, right. but, and during the break, I, I was um, asking Krista what her, what her husband did, I mean, how he had gotten to the States, and um, you were saying that he, well, go ahead, you can, <laughs> you, yeah, you can he, tell. My husband, uh, my, my husband was the top student at the University of Tripoli, and I think that he realized very early on that the only way he could possibly be free from Libya, the only way he could escape would be through education. And so I think when he was a pretty young teenager, he became absolutely determined to do well enough in school to escape this oppressive environment where he found himself. Because when he was at university in Tripoli, some classmates of his organized a protest, um, and it was a fairly small protest of the government, from what I understand. And 
yet the organizers, who were young kids, I mean, they were probably between 17 and 20 years old, um, they disappeared. Hmm. And then they were, they were hung uh, in a very public way. They were executed in Tripoli. Wow. And I think my husband realized that if he stayed in Tripoli, he would probably end up either dead or in jail. Hmm. So his goal was to get out of Libya, and he did that by getting very good grades and being the top student at his university. And the top student won a scholarship to pursue advanced studies abroad. So he came to the United States to do his dissertation. Uh, and that, that's what brought him here. And um, you were telling me he became a geologist. He, he, had got, he got a Ph.D., um, in geology and became a geologist and is now working for a software uh, company. And um, so at the time that you met him, when he was living in this rather humble apartment, um, he actually could have, he had more money than that, right? He could have actually been living more ostentatiously. Actually, I'm not sure he could have because at that time he was doing uh, postgraduate work at oh, the university. Uh-huh. And I was actually quite shocked when he later told me what those types of research positions pay. I mean, he was living pretty close to the bone uh, and, and spending most of his time in the lab doing research in the geology department. Okay. Um, and so, so, okay, tell us now, why don't you tell us now about the, the ring story? I know I'm jumping all around, okay. but <laughs> it's like uh, an no, embarrassment, no riches, an embarrassment of riches. Um, you know, little nuggets in Krista's right. book that are wonderful. Well, okay, so so I was saying that that this journey for me has been about moving from one way of viewing the world to another way of viewing the world, and it's interesting because I feel that. I've had to over and over again confront my own assumptions and my expectations and even a real deep sense of superiority that I had about all sorts of different things. And I would say that bartering is one of those things because my husband is a world-class barterer. I mean, he can, <laughs> he can barter like nobody's business. And there have been times in our relationship when I have been extremely embarrassed of his bartering. And I've thought that his bartering made him seem cheap uh, or irrational. And then there have been other times when I've actually been quite impressed by his ability to barter. So one time when this comes up in the story is when my husband took me to pick out a wedding ring. And as much as I had told him that I didn't care about a ring, as soon as we walked into this jewelry store and I saw all of these diamond rings laid out on velvet, I knew that I had lied <laughs> because I knew that this, this moment when I was presented with a diamond ring had become so significant in my mind. And I picked out a ring and I, I was prepared for him to, to hand it to me and yet, instead of handing it to me, my husband engaged in some really intense bartering with the jeweler. And this was, you know, at the jewelry store at the mall, where I had never imagined and that one, one could barter. Yes, at right, the mall. Right, the price tags were negotiable. And, and 
Look, the well, long and short of it is that my husband, <laughs> the jeweler, actually reduced the price of the ring by 30% to my great shock. <laughs> and I also wrote in the book that, that I then left the store wearing a ring that now appeared exactly 30% smaller on my <laughs> finger. <laughs> Yes, um, and of course, what made it even more difficult was that this was uh, when Krista was like just about to be giving birth um, any any minute now. Well, we need to take right. another break. This hour is going so quickly. My guest is Krista Bremer. Her book is My Accidental Jihad, A Love Story. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about a marriage made in jihad. Uh, What's a nice girl like you doing with a man like this? Krista Bremer has been telling us, and it's, you know, um, not necessarily what we would have imagined. We're talking about, we've been covering some of the um, the jewels, the gems in her book, but, you know, obviously we can't and don't want to <laughs> cover all of them in this hour. So you just have to read the book, and I'll give you the um, way that you can find that when we, uh, in, in just a little, before the show ends. So, Krista, I want to talk about, I want to go back to something that we um, talked briefly about before that I was asking you how long you're, you were married, you are married, and you said about 15 years. So um, that was right before 9-11. Actually, how much right before, wh- when, what, what year was it that you were married? Um, I think it was 2000. I mean, yes, I, not 2011, I meant, <laughs> I meant 9-11. Um, okay, in 2000. So, so where were it's like, uh, and it, that was soon after you met your husband. So we're talking about like what a little over a year before 9/11. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So how did what you know that day? Of course, um, had changed everybody's life. How what happened to you? How did it change your life? Well. I think before 9-11, 
I had uh, some negative associations with my husband's background, but they weren't really about Islam. I, I had a certain sense about Libya because I recalled when I was in high school that we had bombed this country called Libya that was infested with terrorists and had this crazy leader. And I recall that when we bombed this country, it was just taken so for granted that this country deserved Mm. Uh, that act and that there was no possibility of retaliation. And so it almost wasn't, it didn't even warrant discussion um, at the time. And the other exposure that I'd had to Libyans was from Back to the Future. I don't know if you recall that movie, but um, there's a great line in there where the scientist screams, the Libyans are coming. Mm. And then here comes this Volkswagen bus with these crazy guys spraying machine gun fire all over the parking lot. <laughs> so that, that's pretty much all I knew about Libyans. But I didn't have negative associations with Islam. And it was really sort of a shock after 9-11 to see this um, this shift in people's perceptions about Muslims. And all of a sudden, we were talking about the Muslim world, and there was this, you know, this great big category that kind of had snared my husband, and he became a part of that. And it's really, you know, it was really unfortunate because in, the truth is there is no such thing as a Muslim world unless there's such a thing as a Christian world. And as you know, it's, it's like, what could we say that would be a safe generalization about the Christian world? Mm-hmm. I mean, we know, for example, you know, that Sarah Palin's Christian and Michelle Obama's Christian, mm-hmm. so which one of them is a good representation of the Christian world, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I noticed this thing happening where people were increasingly making assumptions about my husband and about his faith. And... I think what was the most difficult is when I noticed this happening among people that I trusted the most, and that would have been friends and family and people who were very well-educated and would have considered themselves liberal or even progressive. So, for example, there was one night I was at a a dinner party with a, a very dear friend, and a Cat Stevens song came on the radio. And she she said, oh, I love Cat Stevens. And I nodded because I love Cat Stevens, too. And, and then she said something like, I couldn't believe when he went off the deep end into that whole Islam thing. And she said, I just felt like, whatever happened to the peace train? Mm. So her, her insinuation was that Islam is the opposite of peace. When, in fact, you know, for my husband and for... Every Muslim that I have personally known, Islam means peace. You know, it's still, it's still one and the same. But it's as if the religion has been thoroughly, it's been hijacked completely. And, uh, and so we were having to deal a lot with people's misunderstandings and, and prejudice related to that. And did that, um, at any time during your relationship with your husband, I mean, from the time you met him, did did it well especially after i mean we weren't really thinking about this so much um before 911 but after 911 did you have some doubts and think to yourself i wonder i mean by then you knew him fairly well but did you ever think huh i wonder if he's going to become a sympathizer um with terrorists no 
I, I think, in fact, I was impacted very differently from that because I, I knew my husband. I know his heart, and I trust him completely. And so to see him over and over again misunderstood by my native country and, you know, by my friends and family put me at odds with my own home country and, and with, you know, the people that I would consider my tribe. So there's a point in the book where I assert that my husband is actually not the only immigrant in our family because in order to make this life with him and this marriage with him, I've had to leave behind what felt most comforting and familiar to me. And once I left that place, I can never quite go back there. Mm-hmm. Because once, the, you know, once some of this um, prejudice and this misconception becomes visible to me, I can no longer unsee it. Uh-huh. And so it puts me in this uncomfortable place where I'm sort of, I'm in between these two worlds. I'm trying to make a home in between these places. And you have two daughters, and um, I guess just one of them was born, I mean, one of them must be, I guess, about 14, 15? She's 13, yeah, 13? and I actually have a son who's eight. I have a daughter and a son. Oh, oh okay. So how have they been uh, impacted, by, or have they been impacted by this kind of prejudice? Well, it's interesting. Um, When my daughter was about nine years old, she decided that she wanted to experiment with wearing the headscarf. And so she began wearing this headscarf uh, to school and to the grocery store with me and out to play with her friends. And it completely spun my head around Mm. because I had always encouraged her to express her individuality and resist peer pressure and you know, in that brilliant way that children do, mm-hmm. she found the exact form of expression that completely made me crazy. Uh-huh. Um, so I had, you know, it was so difficult for me to see her in this headscarf. And I began to try to unpack my own reaction. And um, I, I wrote an essay about this, which appeared in O Magazine. And in this essay, I I sort of explored all of the exposure that I had had as a girl in Southern California, and I reflected on both the benefits and the drawbacks of all that physical exposure. And I arrived at the conclusion that if some women find freedom in exposing themselves, then it must also be valid for other women to Mm. find freedom in covering themselves. Mm. And I I really was not prepared for the reaction to that essay because I I received all sorts of mail from Muslims all over the world who, you know, who were saying things like, praise be to God, your daughter is on the right path, (laughs) you know. And then I also received mail from people who considered themselves feminists, and many of them were academics, and they said some really hateful things to me about what a shameful parent I was, and they accused me of subjecting my daughter to a tool of misogyny. And so I realized it was, it was such, a, such a volatile topic when, yeah. for me, it was, it, I, I did not intend to make any statement about the headscarf. It was really, for me, an essay about parenting and about... Yes, but you could see the where parts that of would... our children that are, 
that are mis- that are mysteries to us. I mean, our children in some ways are mysterious, and we know so little about the future yeah. that, that they're we- going to inherit. Um, Krista, I want, I am so sorry to have to interrupt you. Our time is up and I want to make sure that I give out your website so people can, uh, find out more about you and the book. And there's a fabulous video on Krista's website that I encourage you to all watch. Um, her website is KristaBremer.com, which is K-R-I-S-T-A, Bremer, B-R-E-M-E-R.com. KristaBremer.com. And please go to that. Check out this book. Krista, it was an absolute delight. And um, you're surfing really, little did you know at the time, but your surfing really served you well in, with the ups and downs and waves of your marriage and, <laughs> and, and your family. So thank you so much for joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for joining us. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.